Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. The Catechism is working through the issue of dealing with why we call Christ Christ and why we are called a Christian. So we're still walking through the persons of the Trinity, but there's an important understanding that Christ is called Christ and we are called Christians. That is, those who are part of Christ. Uh, so now if we want to ask about this, obviously we, we can say, well, maybe we believe that we're just tied to some rabbi and we just want to be identified with this rabbi, that there's really nothing more behind it. I mean, that might be one thing that we could say. Uh, also, when we think about this reality of what the catechism is teaching us, it wants us to understand that this isn't just some optional teacher or some individual that we, we see as, as being maybe a better rabbi than other rabbis. But this is truly our Savior. That's what the Catechism wants to drive home. Christ is our Savior. And as we look at the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, as he's basically applying Romans 1 through 11, and now working out what that looks like in our Christian life, he exhorts us to see ourselves as undergoing a process of metamorphosis, uh, not necessarily something we always think of in, in terms of sanctification, but that's what the Apostle Paul desires us to see. And so how can we as individuals and humans go through this process of metamorphosis as those who are sharing in Christ, part of Christ? How does Christ apply to this? What does all this stuff mean? And so as we seek to answer this, we'll see first that we're called in Christ, and secondly, that we are changed in Christ. And so let's begin with the called in Christ. So question answer 31 is asking an important question. Why is Jesus called Christ, meaning anointed? An important question. Uh, because we might say, well, maybe Jesus Christ isn't that significant. Well, the reality is there were other people that would go by the name of Jesus, uh, and so we, we want to understand there's something significant about this one Jesus that we worship. And we worship him because this anointing or Christ literally means anointed. Uh, this comes from basically the Hebrew word Messiah or, or Mishnah, which means Messiah or anointed. So Christ is basically taking the translation of the Hebrew, bringing it into Greek, and now it's into English. So when we speak of Christ the Messiah or Christ the Christ, all we're saying is Jesus is the anointed one of God to do his purpose. Uh, he's set apart for this task. Now, anointing in Scripture is also significant. Uh, when an individual has oil poured over them in an official anointing ceremony, this isn't just to protect the skin. Uh, oil was part of hygiene in the ancient Near East, Obviously, if you're in a dry, hot climate, 
Uh, you are going to want to put lotion on your skin to keep it from, from cracking or getting chapped. And so that's one use of oil you can read in Scripture. When it's officially used in a particular task of anointing, it means that an individual is set apart, set apart by the Lord. It's an outward presentation of the Spirit being poured out on that individual, set apart for a task. And so the Catechism wants us to understand we, we don't follow Jesus because we're persuaded he's a better rabbi of many rabbis or a better teacher of many options, but he is the only means of salvation. To be very clear, there is no salvation outside of Christ, period. You cannot be saved outside of Christ. That's what the Catechism wants us to understand. And so why do we have this sort of elitist view, if you will? I mean, is this something we just like, or is this really something that we see Scripture saying? Well, I believe this is what Scripture teaches. Uh, when we look at this, the Catechism wants us to understand that Christ is anointed in the Spirit. We may say, well, why is that important? Well, when Christ finishes his temptation, goes into the synagogue in Luke 4, what, what does he do? Well, he's one who reads a passage from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, where he says he's proclaimed good news to the poor. So he's a proclaimed, preach the gospel, the true gospel, to proclaim the liberty to the captives. So he's the one who's the action, the, the pronouncement of this liberty of those who are captive, held in prison of sin. Uh, he's the one who recovers the sight of the blind. And as you know in the Gospels, uh, blindness isn't just literal blindness. I mean, obviously there's miracles where people who are blind see, but this is also the metaphor for spiritual blindness. So he's opening the sight so we see who Christ is. Uh, liberty to the oppressed. So when we're weighed down, weighed down by our sin, when he cites Isaiah 61, he's saying he's the one who brings uh, this liberty. We find ultimately he's the one who proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. Christ stands there and says, today this scripture is fulfilled. And so the point of that is Christ is saying, I am the fulfillment of what Isaiah was looking to. So when a catechism is making this claim that salvation is only in Christ, this isn't just a human document. And so we shouldn't be dismissive and say, well, that's just what the catechism says. It's someone's opinion. No, the catechism is taking the scriptures and saying, this is what the scriptures say. This is what the scriptures teach. Uh, there is no salvation outside of Christ. There is no life outside of Christ. And so when we think about who Christ is and what the catechism uh, declares to us, it says he is our prophet and our teacher. This means Christ continues uh, to instruct us, to inform us, to enlighten us, uh, to conform us to his will. He is our high priest. You know, this is what we're going to get into with the book of Hebrews. Well, if, you know, we had priests in the Old Testament, what is our priest in the New Testament? Catechism's teaching us he's our high priest. He's the one who makes payment. He's the one who covers for our sins. Uh, he's the one who accomplishes our redemption once for all, makes a purification as we heard, you know, the end process that we can come into the presence of God. And he is our eternal king. So it's not just God the Father is our eternal king, 
But Jesus Christ is our eternal king. Now this is where the catechism's launching into the significance of Christ being anointed and us sharing in the anointing. That he governs us by his word and spirit. So we shouldn't see the Holy Bible as just this dead document. I think sometimes, unfortunately, uh, we can take it for granted, which I hope we don't. But we can. We can just say, well, you know, I'll get my scripture reading done. I'll do this in the morning. I'll get it out of the way. Then I'll go on with my day. But the Catechism is teaching us that God actually works through his scripture. Uh, I'm always amazed uh, when I go to another text that I may have preached years ago or, or however long ago. You come back to it and you realize, wow, I missed a lot of things the last time I went into the text. And I thought I brought a lot out. And so my point is, we, we, we say scriptures like the ocean. On the one hand, you, you can get to the surface level and you can see uh, the substance of it. You, you can understand the substance of it. It can accomplish its purpose if you're in a vessel sailing from one place to another. But you also understand there's multiple layers and there's a depth that seems inexhaustible. And that's what the catechism is reminding us. That as we read these words, as we study the scriptures... As we discern the truth of God in the Spirit, He continues to teach us. And He continues to open our eyes, our hearts, our minds to more of His truth. And this is why I wanted to jump to Romans 12. When we look at Romans, uh, it's essential that when we look at chapter 12, that this isn't a passage that just stands on its own. I think sometimes we can take this passage and just sort of cut it out from the rest of Romans and just look at how we are to live. And, and, and we fail to understand the significance of this passage and even these verses, how it's assuming the rest of Romans. So when you look at these verses, uh, if we want to just fall into a trap of thinking that, you know, we're those that are just to basically live as living sacrifices and jump to that. If we're not careful in what the Apostle Paul intends, now we are called to live as living sacrifices. I, I do not deny this. But if we just jump to this, we can immediately fall right into Roman Catholic theology and say Christ is the one who started something. Now it's up to me to be the sacrifice to finish uh, what God has started or what Christ has started. Obviously, we, we don't want to do that. We, we don't want to go down uh, that road. And so we want to put this and in the context of what the Apostle Paul intends. So notice now in, in chapter 12, he begins with, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. And it's important that when he writes this appeal, this is a, an exhortation. Now, this exhortation, it's not something that's optional. So I don't want to come across as saying, well, you know, maybe this is a good idea. You know, maybe as you give an advice to a friend who's making a big purchase, well, you know, maybe it's a good idea to do this, maybe it's a good idea to do that, but, you know, you can do what you want with my advice. I, I don't know. You know, I, I'm not fully in your situation. When I hear it sounds like a good idea. That's not the force of an exhortation. The exhortation is a very for, firm uh, statement of what we are called to do, and so, yes, we, we are called to do these things. But it's not done in a way that's intended to beat us down. Uh, it's, it's a gentle prodding. It's a way of encouragement. It's sort of pulling us to the goal of reminding us, hey, listen, that as you understand who you are in Christ, look, look at where you're going. Understand who you are. You're going 
to live for your Lord. You're, you're going to conform to his name. And, and this is a privilege. And so this, this exhortation isn't intended to be something that's intimidating, something that's harsh, as Paul writes this, but it's not optional. So I want to be clear on that. It's, it's words of comfort, uh, words that, that move us to, to move from this place to another place. So it's important to understand when Paul says, I appeal to you, he is desiring that we do move uh, in our actions, in our lives, in our desires uh, to the purpose of God. And he's not intending to beat us up with this. And notice that as he appeals to us, he does so by the mercies of God. This is something we're going into Romans and, and hearing this word. Uh, this is a word that's not used very often in the New Testament Greek in terms of mercy. It's used uh, quite often in the Old Testament with the Subtuagent. If you remember, the Subtuagent is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It's used throughout the Psalms in parallel to steadfast love. And so what Paul's doing is he's calling us to understand who God is. He's a father of mercies, parallel to steadfast love. God is consistent. God is merciful. God comes to us. He has redeemed us. And so the Apostle Paul wants us to understand the significance of who this God is. He's not a, a new God. He's a God of the Old Testament. But the God of the Old Testament, he wants to drive home as a God who is faithful to his covenantal promises. The God who is the one who has moved in his steadfast love to show his compassion and consistency to his people. So we're, we're getting at what the catechism tries to drive home. Motivated to obey God out of gratitude. Not out of fear, not out of terror, out of gratitude. So yes, we, we are called to live lives of obedience to God, but the motivation is gratitude. Now when he says, I appeal to you therefore brothers, and he says by the mercies of God, which we covered, he has a therefore. As you know, a there is there for a reason. And so if you think about what Paul has done in Romans, basically just generally quickly, we've talked about this in catechism, see if the kids remember, where we said that our catechism is, is based on the structure of Romans. So we'd say basically Romans uh, 1 uh, through 3 verse 20 is dealing with the fall of man, depravity, how man cannot be righteous, so sin. Then we go on from Romans 3, verse 21 to 5, verse 21, salvation. Where you have there how God comes to a people, how he's faithful to his promises, how he has overcome in Christ, and Christ is the one who shows uh, his power and his might. And so there we have that salvation. Going on then, moving on, where we continue with gratitude, basically six to the end. But if we want to be more precise, we can see six, one through eight, verse 39, of how the Lord is going to bring his saints to glory. So yes, under salvation, crossing over into sanctification, but the reminder that it's God who's bringing us to his glory and the certainty and that perseverance and the wonderful comfort in that reality. Romans 9 through 11, the assurance that God is not done with his people, that he continues to work in his people. So now, Romans 12 is leaving us with the question of, I'm a Gentile or I'm a Jew. How do I view this God? I understand we're all sinners. I understand Christ has overcome. I understand Jews and Gentiles come together. 
but how do I live unto God? Well, what does this all mean? And so that's what Paul is addressing here in Romans 12. And he wants us to understand our motivation is by the Father of all mercies. That's what's driving home, the Father of all mercies. So when we're called to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, we're doing this by the Father of all mercies. How has he manifested himself? Well, as Romans has said, Christ, Jesus Christ, the anointed one who has come to overturn the sentence of death in Adam is the one who manifests the mercy of God. Christ comes because of the steadfast love of our Lord. Uh, so Christ is the embodiment of the promise, the one who is anointed uh, to fulfill that promise and praise be to God that he does. So then what about the meaning of, okay, so Christ is anointed. That's what he means. He's set apart for his task. He's done his task. Praise be to God for that. Uh, he has finished his work. Now what? What does it mean that I am a Christian? And so when the catechism addresses this, it wants us to understand that we are part of the Lord. We share in his anointing. Uh, Christ has accomplished the Lord's plan, and now I am a member of Christ. And I love how the catechism ties in assurance with this, that I'm a member of Christ by faith. And so it's an understanding that as I take hold of Christ by faith, you know, as we've talked about Calvin, as long as Christ remains outside of us, he's of no benefit to us. That's what the catechism's getting at. So as I take hold of Christ by faith, I'm not just taking part of a declaration of pardon. That's, that's part of it, certainly. Certainly Christ has made it so I'm declared righteous. But I'm also taking hold of the person who has a transforming power. I share in his anointing. The Holy Spirit is present within me, setting me apart as one of his precious children, manifested and, and benefiting from God being the Father of all mercies. That's what the catechism is driving home. So what does this anointing look like? What does it look like that we take hold of Christ by faith, uh, walk in the power of his spirit as the spirit has been poured out upon us, granting us this gift of faith? We confess his name. And so we stand up and say, yes, I believe Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Uh, I believe he has satisfied the wrath of the Father. Uh, there is no other way to be right with God than to bow my knee before uh, this great king who has conquered. It means also uh, we present ourselves, and this is where you get into the language of Romans 12, as living sacrifices to God. And I love this because one of the criticisms Rome brought against the Reformed is we can't account for living a pious life. And the Catechism pulls the very language from Romans and says, no, we actually live as living sacrifices to God. We die to self, we live unto him. We deny ourselves our sinful desires and desire to conform unto the Lord. And I love how the catechism reminds us then that as we present ourselves as living sacrifices, we have this assurance that we will reign with Christ forever. That taking hold of Christ by faith is really reaching into the age to come. That's what the catechism, I think, does such a great job of driving home and does many things well. But this is one of the things I really love about our catechism. It drives home the reality that we are part of Christ 
we reach into the heavenly reality. We are a people who are moving to heaven even now in this age. And so we are a member of Christ by the power of the Spirit. It's the Spirit that changes us, transforms us, works within us, and the Apostle Paul is exhorting us to live in this reality. So getting back then to Romans 12, as I mentioned, this language in the catechisms being lifted, at least from one passage right here in Romans 12, this call for us to be a living sacrifice. We may say, well, maybe this sounds a bit extreme. I mean, what, is, what does that mean as a living sacrifice? It's a, it's a bit of a contradiction. I mean, if you think of a sacrifice, you don't think of it living. Uh, even Christ, when he sacrifices himself, he dies on the cross. And so this is where the Apostle Paul does want us to contemplate this a little bit. Uh, the life-giving spirit has been poured out in, uh, upon us, in us, dwells within us. We are those who then live unto the Lord. That's what it's getting at. And so it's important to be clear on this. When you read Romans, and this is why I want to drive home that therefore, Paul is not saying we have to complete the work of Christ. In other words, Christ has got us kind of to the place, and then uh, we have to finish this by, by doing a sacrifice and completing his work. The work is done. But what the Apostle Paul is now starting to, to you know, bring to the surface and want us to understand more explicitly, what does it look like to live unto Christ? What does it look like now that the Spirit is part of who we are? It's important to understand that as we live as this living sacrifice, notice what he says, present your bodies as living sacrifices. You know, so often we think of uh, Christianity as being a spiritual religion. Obviously, it's spiritual uh, God is spirit. This is what we say as, as who he is. Belgic says he's simple. He's not made of complex parts. But when we think about our redemption, we need to remember God redeemed us body and soul. And as God redeems us and he brings this creation to its glory, we're not going to be in an ideal state of disembodied spirits floating around in heaven. We have to understand when the Lord redeems, you know, we, we can't fall into a mindset that, that some philosophies have that what I do in the body is inconsequential, but what I do in the soul really matters. We have to understand that even as we're fallen, even as we experience the, the common curse, we are still redeemed, body and soul, by our Lord. Now Christ being physically raised from the dead is not the Lord saying the physical realm is so immoral and, and disgusting. But it's, again, affirming what God says that is creation. It is good. And so we should see our bodies as redeemed. That's what the Apostle Paul's driving home. And as he goes on to speak of this understanding of this living sacrifice, he tells us not to be conformed to this world. So what is our tension? Well, what is our value system that, that tempts us? This is what Paul's driving home. Our temptation, our, our value system, is to value the things of this age. And, and we can understand that this is what we see. This is what we deal with in our day-to-day -day lives. It's hard for us to realize that there is something bigger than our day-to-day -day existence. And the Apostle Paul is saying, have a bigger picture than your day-to-day -day existence. Don't be conformed to this world. 
We're tempted to be conformed to the priorities of this age. We're tempted to order our lives according to the things of this world and the priorities of this age. Paul's saying, be conscious of who you are. And as he reminds us to understand a redemption in terms of our body, having a new priority, he reminds us that we have a renewal of our mind. And so there's a whole new mindset that's starting to to take place within us. And that this has to continually be ordered and, and reorganized in terms of the priorities of heaven. This is an ongoing process. This is a struggle. And the Apostle Paul is saying, continue to fight this good fight in the struggle. Reorient your mind. Think about the priorities of heaven. This is where the Apostle Paul uses this language, this renewal of her mind, but is by our testing. We discern what is the will of God. So this is where you're getting into the realm of Christian liberty, where I understand what is sinful for me, what can lead me down a path that would distract me from my Lord and Savior. May not necessarily be an explicit command in Scripture, but as I study the Scriptures, as I think about the Scriptures, I start thinking, well, you know, if I continue to to go down this road, it leads me in a dangerous place. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, this is where we need to have this wisdom. Understand, there's, there's things within us Uh, that are conforming to heaven, things that are conforming to this world. And Paul's saying, exercise wisdom. Understand that in the sanctifying process, as you're anointed in Christ, sharing in his spirit, have the blessings of Christ, there's things that can pull you away from Christ. Be aware of that. And he reminds us then to know what is good and acceptable and, and perfect and to truly have those priorities in terms of our own lives. So it's not me trying to work this out in someone else's life, is all of us as Christians wanting to work this out in our own lives. Now, I mentioned uh, this language of what's going on uh, with metamorphosis. And, and, and we hear that and we say, well, what are you talking about? How, how can we, we talk about metamorphosis in terms of the Christian life? Well, if you've noticed, I skipped over a word. And it's a very important word. Because when you look at verse 2, he says, But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, and by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so, yes, we are called to discern. We are called to have a reprioritizing in our minds uh, continually. But at this point, again, we can get to a place where we can think, Well, I need to do this. Christ has done something, but now I need to do this. This language of transformed, and, and I don't know how they, how they could do a better job of bringing this into English, but the Greek word is metaphor, metaorpho, uh, or metamorpho, and this is where we get metamorphosis. So the, the analogy I like to use, and I know we can talk about insects, but I think one of the things that, that's always intrigued me is you think about a tadpole moving to a frog. If you look at the tadpole, it looks just like a fish. I mean, it looks like a weird fish, but you'd think at first glance that's just a fish with a funny head. But that fish is going to move from having gills and and swimming around and eating and looking like a fish to sprouting legs, 
eventually losing the gills, growing lungs, and transforming into a frog. And if you think about that process, you know, we, we can think of maybe in terms of how Paul uses the language in 1 Corinthians 15 of moving from this age to the age to come, uh, more of like the cocoon, where it's like a caterpillar moving to a butterfly when we move from shedding this body to putting on the new body. But I like the tadpole and the frog because they look so radically different. But yet by God's creative power, this, this is a transforming process that's going on. They're, they're metamorphosizing. They're, they're moving from one thing to another in this process of metamorphosis. That's what the Apostle Paul uses here. This language, this word in terms of our sanctification. To give you an understanding of how this is used, it's not used very commonly in the New Testament. And so we can actually go through the references that are used. He used it in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, where he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being uh, metamorphosized, I guess we can say, or undergoing metamorphosis into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In other words, it's the Lord who's progressively transforming us and at work within our lives. The other places where we find this is in Matthew 17, 2, Mark 9, verse 2. And if you're familiar, this would be the context of the transfiguration of Christ standing before the apostles as a normal, everyday-looking human being and then being transformed or metamorphosis into glory before their eyes. And so it's this understanding of how the Lord is working within our lives. You know, we use the analogy, like Peter speaks of the sanctification being the refining fire, and certainly it is. God testing us through trials, Christ using the language of the cross. And so a lot of these metaphors in Scripture of sanctification calls for our suffering and reminds us of suffering. But as I mentioned, remember I said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Now, it's, these aren't optional things, but it's the Apostle Paul gently prodding us, reminding us. And what is he reminding us of? That as we share in the anointing of Christ, our God has not forsaken us. The process of metamorphosis is going on in our lives. Now, thankfully, we don't turn into frogs. But the point is that we move to the point of the ultimate glorified human being. The beauty of this, because so often we can think, well, why, why struggle? Why conform to the Lord? Why, why struggle against the flesh? Why want to live unto Christ? The Apostle Paul is saying you're actually beginning to taste the glory of heaven right now. You're actually tasting the glory of heaven right now. It's at work in you. You're undergoing this, this transformation in such a way that what you begin to taste now is only going to get sweeter and sweeter and sweeter until you arrive at the full presence of God. Remember the catechism talks about Christ being our high priest, Christ being seated on the throne. We think so often, oh, Christ is so distant. Christ doesn't care. Christ isn't present. Why is the Spirit so significant? Why does this matter? Because the Spirit is bringing us through this process of the metamorphosis that God desires for us. 
So as Paul goes on to exhort us by the grace of God to conform to Christ, to die to self, to, to bring forth these things, he's saying you're actually tasting the sweetness of God. You're tasting the sweetness of his glory as you sojourn in this life. And so we shouldn't just think of sanctification as trials, going through trials, burdens of trials, and then coming out purified. Yes, uh, we do see that in Scripture, but we also have to hold it in balance with this text, the metamorphosis, the beauty. Think of the Apostle Paul in this passage putting his arm around you, comforting you when you're down, and saying, listen, I know you can get discouraged. You're facing persecution. Bad things are coming against you. Let me walk you through where we're going here. I appeal to you as a brother, as a family member in Christ. I appeal to you by the steadfast mercy of God, the mercies of God, his steadfast love manifested in Christ. I appeal to you to see that you're undergoing a process of metamorphosis, shaped, molded by the power of God as you share in the anointing of Christ. What a wonderful thing. So if somebody asks you, why are you a Christian? You say, because I'm undergoing the metamorphosis of the Christian life. And what a wonderful way to begin to talk about living out of gratitude, because that certainly is going to capture someone's attention as to what you mean by that. And so when we ask that question of how can we be those as humans undergoing a process of metamorphosis? Because where Paul starts in Romans, we are those who are fallen, enemies of God, naturally those who hate God and our neighbor. It's not a beautiful or pretty picture of the human condition. But as we follow the structure of Romans in the Catechism, it's the Lord who comes to us, the Lord who gives us new life, the Lord who fulfills the ministry and the promises that he has said. Christ who has declared us righteous definitively. But it's also Christ as we share in his anointing that we're being progressively transformed in this process of metamorphosis, beginning to resemble and show the glory of heaven as we live out the gospel, sharing in the anointing of our Lord. Let us then not hope in ourselves, but let us hope in Christ, let us discern what is pleasing to him. Let us desire to be transformed according to the heavenly priorities. And let us be willing to die to self. And let us long for this metamorphosis to continue until we arrive at the full glory when our Lord returns and we stand with him in the fullness of his kingdom. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Mm -hmm.